You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome to Tell Me How You Did It. I'm Namrata Zakaria and I'm here to bring to you my handpicked list of some of India's finest brands. Yes, our best homegrown companies that can compete with the world's best and still win the battle hands down. These companies range from food, fashion and film to home, art and design. I'm only too happy to talk to the founders who not only chased their rainbows, they also made India proud. Make sure you tune in at hdsmartcast.com week after week to shake the hands that built our best businesses. Listen to them tell me how they did it. A few years ago, fashion mogul Sabyasachi Mukherjee had told me that a woman came up to him at an airport in Bhubaneswar and fell at his feet. She said to him that her husband came into great wealth copying his clothes. Everything she owned, she owed to Sabyasachi. I thought this was such an amazing story because what she had done is she had put a photograph of him in a temple in a house alongside pictures of all her gods and she actually prayed to him, she told him. You know, we know of Sabyasachi's numbers. We know how successful he is. He's often enough in the pink papers and transparent enough to share details of his financials. But this sort of hero worshipping is only seen in like movie stars and cricketers, not really a fashion designer. Sabyasachi is here with me, with us today, hot on the heels of great success and a little bit of controversy to tell us how he did it. Sabya, welcome to tell me how you did it. I hope you're in the mood of spilling some serious beads. Thank you, Namrata. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult question to answer. I still don't know how I did it. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, a lot of sacrifice, but plenty of luck as well. And uh, I also think that along the way, I realized that, you know, when you build a brand, it's no longer just about the product. It's about how you conduct yourself with the press, how you tell a story, how you market the brand, which in India sometimes people think is a very wrong word. And, you know, like to be successful as a designer or a design entrepreneur, one needs to check many boxes. It is not just about product and design only. It's about the ethos of the brand. It's about communication. It's about understanding how the world is moving, where the world is moving. It is about uh, having a connect with the audience. And also uh, it is about creating an aspiration with a product that is transient. I like how you attribute it to luck because 2021 has been a remarkable year for you. You started it with the mega announcement of Aditya Birla Fashion and Retail buying a majority stake in your company. Just last week, your long-awaited collaboration with H&M was launched internationally. You really make us believe in God, you know that, right? Well, I believe in God, Namrata. I'm very grateful to Mr. Kumar Mamalambilla because, you know, we had this ongoing dialogue for the last three, four years because when I turned 45, I'm 47 now, I had decided that, you know, I would start uh, looking at this business from the point of posterity. I, I, I don't have any children. Uh, my family is not very interested in the business that I do. And many designers... Uh, have been selfish enough to keep the brand just to themselves and then you know uh, the brand dies a painful death 
when they cannot handle the business anymore. And I, you know, I wanted Sabisachi to be about not just about me, but about everybody. And I say that you know, this is the time when we start sowing the seeds of uh, creating a business that can last beyond my generation. And uh, Mr. Birla saw merit in it, and uh, we decided that we'll work together. And the timing couldn't have been better because you know we had started speaking about a year before the pandemic. Of course, the deal happened a little later because every one of us went into a tizzy, and then. You know, good things happen to people who wait. H and M happened. The deal happened. I'm we still have four months left to 2021 getting over. So, any more shockers coming up? Uh, you know, if time was correct, I would have uh, I would have actually opened a store in New York by now. But I think it's going to get delayed because of the pandemic. Uh, we've just opened a jewelry store, luxury jewelry store in Dubai, and. Uh, uh, but this is the year when we are going to actually start uh, focusing on creating a much more stronger backend, because I think there are certain years you grow, where there are certain years you consolidate. I think this has been a great learning experience for all of us. The pandemic has taught us many lessons. It is important for growing businesses to learn from the pandemic and apply these learnings into business, so that you know you can run a better and a more, a more successful business in future. I have to ask you right here, right now, about the controversy that ensued um, after your H&M launch. A bunch of artisan-related NGOs got together and collectively wrote you an open letter on their social platforms, criticizing you of tying up with a fast fashion brand. You know my thoughts, right? I've already written about it. Um, I've, I've even shared, uh, you know, I've even posted about it, and I actually quite agitated about this Brahminical bullying and this sort of ganging up. I just think it's unpleasant. It reflects very poorly on them. But I I want to know your thoughts. I want you to tell all of us what you are going through because on one hand, to be celebrated internationally is wonderful. And on the other hand, to be, you know, pilloried in your own country, it must be confusing or angering or whatever you feel. It's confusing at Namrata. I don't know if it angers me because, you know, I've long gone past that stage because I think I've been controversy's child, at least in fashion. <laughs> and you get used to it, uh, you know. And I also think that, you know, when you become a very powerful brand, everybody's going to have an opinion. And you, you as the owner of the brand, you need to man up to learn to take it. You know, the good with the bad with the ugly. But having said that, you know, when H&M actually came to me, you know, there are a lot of questions about uh, about them, about sustainability, I knew that, you know, uh, I would be sent to the doghouse if I did the collaboration. I, I knew what what's going to happen, but I still did it. And I'm I surprised you say that because I think it's a lot of fuss over nothing. No, I, I it is a lot of fuss over nothing. But I think that, you know, here we are all missing the bigger picture. And I'll tell you why I did it. See, H&M has a very simple business model. They do a collaboration with a very powerful designer in a region who has a massive following but probably doesn't have a business of scale to be able to uh, reach out to that following. And they do these collaborations only once with each designer. And I was very clear that I wanted to be a part of the collaboration. And I'll tell you why, Namrata. Because, you know, it pains me that after being in this industry for so long, you know, we have so many, so much resources, there's so much history, there's so much heritage. We have never been able to cross over and create a very strong brand out of India. For the longest time, we have been producers. We have never been able to helm a brand. People have come from outside. They have taken things from India and they have created 
great brands, but we have been reduced as manufacturers. And for me, it was a personal mission to be able to attempt to change that once in my lifetime. I also thought that, you know, a collaboration of this scale would sensitize people to India. It would open up many doors of dialogue. And uh, let's talk about the Sanganer print, for instance, you know, the, you know, the issue of controversy. I think that craft has a place. And for me, it has a place in luxury. For the last 20 years, irrespective of all the criticism that people say about me, they cannot refute the fact that I've single-handedly in many ways, and I, I speak about it with no arrogance, just with honesty, that I've raised the bar of craft in the country. You know, I worked, started working with Banaras a very long time ago. And if you speak directly to a lot of viewers in Banaras, they will say, yes, because of Mr. Mukherjee, the prices of Banarsi saris have gone up. I've partnered with Bollywood because I know the kind of image making that is necessary in India because, you know, Bollywood is almost like a very big subculture. In fact, for Indian weddings, you know, whether it was bringing the Gotapatti back or the Kirna back on the Pikas Dupatta or whether it was telling, collaborating with Anushka actually to make her wear a Banarsi sari of which millions of copies have been made by now. I've always championed craft and my thing is very simple. I'm like, why is it that when handmade in Italy, when handmade in France, handmade anywhere in in the world, has such expensive price tags and such great marketing has been created around it, why do we have to resign craft and not pick up to a high street level and not pick up craft to luxury? I think that, you know, customers today are very, very intelligent. They're very aware. They know exactly what is going on. And like, I remember, you know, I used to go and buy Calvin Klein underwear from Bangkok, fake ones, when I didn't have money. And then eventually I aspired to buy the real underwear when I had money. And, you know, I remember we all went to, uh, we all went to Bangkok in the night markets and bought fake logo t-shirts, eventually wanting to buy the real thing. Similarly with craft, I think that, you know, when, you know, today a discerning customer who, who has got into money will probably buy a version of the craft at a digitized level and then buy the real craft at a luxury level at a much better price. And it's a great thing for the economy. It's a great thing for the artisans. You know, when craft expands and craft expands at a, um, at a mass level, but the prices go down, who benefits? The middleman benefits. The individual carrier is still getting paid pittance. The aggregator benefits. And I think that, you know, what we have tried to do as a brand in a couture level, and, you know, we've done it in so many ways. We've done collaborations with Christian Louboutin. We've done collaborations. Uh, we've actually found space in uh, Bergdorf Goodman under the rotunda next to Dior and Chanel, where we sold Karwa Banarsi saris and we showed the finest of Pashmina shawls and everything proudly said handmade in India. Because that customer has the money to be able to not only buy craft, but be able to look after it. Like, you know, you're talking about an audience at H&M, who would probably not have the luxury of dry cleaning or laundering clothes outside. They would probably put it in the washing machine. Sometimes compliance does not allow you. Price points don't allow you because, you know, when you're talking about a very large brand, you know, a large brand has budgets of marketing, budgets of uh, distribution, budgets of retail, budgets of logistics, budgets of salaries. And you can't really buy something at X and sell it at 2X. You know, Probably an NGO can do that because their overheads are lower. But 
a big multinational can't do that. They'll probably have to take something at X and price it at 4X or 5X. And that is the nature of the business because, you know, business has to be sustainable first for everything else to follow. You know, idealism is wonderful, but idealism can only sustain when there is commerce. Without commerce, idealism is a vague ideal. I like what you said about design and craft being a two-way street because traditionally, historically, you know, craft has come into our language thanks to the patronage of of the royalty, of the nizams, of the sultans. Um, They have supported it and and popularized it, right? Even our wedding wear. I mean, there's a reason why we dress up as king and a queen and we sit on the thrones, you know, because we want to emulate what what the rich did or in our case, what the royal family did. So that whole Raja Rani, Dulha Dulan idea comes from there. And also what you said about today's high street customer being tomorrow's luxury customer, because that's how I became a luxury customer. That's how we all became luxury customers, right? Yeah. And, you know, like much has been said about the H&M Sari. You see, there are a lot of people who are within the fashion fraternity for whom the sari is cool. But there, if we get out of a little bubble of Instagram and look at the big reality outside, a lot of young girls are not wearing a sari. You know, for them, when you make the sari cool, because they all want to be global citizens, you wear a viscose sari today, but you are going to wear a Banarsi tomorrow or a silk tomorrow. The idea is to open the doors for dialogue. And I think that, you know, when I look at the H&M collaboration, I don't think this collaboration was just about fashion. This was an India collaboration. Very rarely have such large collaborations happened in the country. You know, we are looking at markets like Vietnam, Belgium, France, Italy, Germany, South Korea, you know, Philippines, USA, UK, Italy, Spain, you know, about 18 to 20 countries and 42 online markets and everything all sold out under one hour. You know, my friends at the New York Fifth Avenue store said that, you know, they could not get hold of any merchandise. Isn't it a big win for India? And what am I supposed to do as an Indian designer? As an Indian designer, do you want me to sell polka dots and stripes? Or do you want to sell an idea of India? Yes, I've done hybrid versions of the Sanganeri print, married to Tuldiji, married to Achins. But I wanted to show an India that I was proud of in whichever form we did. And today a design student probably sitting in Paris or in London or in Italy or in Spain who's never heard of the word Sanganer will probably Google it, find out, let them come to India and let them decide whether they want to do digital or they want to do craft. I think exposure is the most important thing. Exposure leads to greater dialogues, leads to greater uh, commerce and with commerce sustaining So many things can sustain. I think there is a place for technology in the world. Technology is coming in because we have one big problem in the world, which is population. Technology probably will help you with population because at the end of the day, Namrata, everybody needs clothes. You know, we talk about sustainability, but we very well know that it's going to be a never-ending dialogue because there is so much of dichotomy in uh, sustainability. Sometimes producing sustainable does not mean the uh, consumption is sustainable. Sometimes when you're not producing sustainably, your consumption becomes sustainable. It's and contradictory. In many, many ways, it's contradictory. Yeah. I think people have a very myopic way of looking at sustainability. You need to look at it holistically. And sustainability means different things for different economies. We all want to save the planet. But, you know, uh, we had a 
great Bengali poet, Shukant, I think it was Shukanto Bhattacharya, I do not want to misquote, but I think it was Shukanto. He said something about the Bengal famines. He said that, you know, today when I'm hungry, I want to say goodbye to poetry. I have no art inside me anymore, no idealism left, because every time I look at a moon, it reminds me of a roti. Oh, oh, that's just painful. Yeah, and and that is the reality of the world today. Yeah. A lot of people can afford to talk about sustainability, but a lot of people can't. It's all economics. You know, like it's very easy to globalize everything on all perception and say this is right and this is not right. Step into people's shoes, step into consumer's shoes, step into different economic landscape and then stand on a wall and shout out. Yeah, I totally, I totally hear you. And that is also why I started the fundraiser I did, Baradri, because, you know, for us in India, economic sustainability, rural economies, you know, stirring that sort of sustainable livelihood is the most important thing that we've not been able to, to do for 75 years. I mean, we're just not able to get out of that chronic poverty cycle. But I would like to ask you, and if you would like to tell And me, before that, I would just like to intervene. I have so many people calling me who are asking me to want to know more about Chins and Sanganer because I am saying you know what is important you know there there is a Hindi saying that I've always used as a part of my marketing mantra Pehre darshandhari fir what does it mean? which means you first have to like something to appreciate the intrinsic quality of it. I wanted people to get exposed to the India that I was proud of. In whichever matter, it didn't matter. And let them discover India and let them decide. You know, like I said, a lot of people, if you speak to a lot of design students today in the country, a lot of people will say, I love technology. For every Manish Arora, there is a Sabdisachi. For every modernist, there is a traditionalist. Why, why does one have to cancel the other? What is your relationship with the artisan? How many do you employ? How many do you outsource from? And what is the financial equation that you share with them in terms of wages or salaries? Just can you throw some light on on this? Yes, Namrata. We have 1,600 karigas right now. 1,600 people directly employed in the company. Employed? Employed. Directly employed within the, within the company. 1,600. That's an enviable number. Yes, but the more enviable number is the people that we outsource from. It's close to 7,500 people all over India. And I'm very proud to say that the number multiplies by quite many hundreds if you look at the copy market. (laughs) I would say a couple of million. But you know, when you when you shared last year and you were the first designer to do this during the lockdown that, you know, to publicly make the sort of commitment that all your employees would be paid uh, through the lockdown, I mean, that was very uh, responsible and also seemingly impossible of you because it's hard to do, right? Everything economically stood still for three, four months. But you publicly made that sort of commitment. No, Namrata, even today, I have to say we had to let go of a few people. It is not that we didn't. But with the promise, we, you know, uh, I think we paid people till the end of September, October. And it was a lot of money because the company was bleeding. And But we still kept a lot of people, at least 60% of the people were working from home. A lot of people are still getting salaries, but they still haven't managed to come in because, you know, we are running our workshops at 50% capacity. That's the mandate of the state government. And uh, having said that, 
One of the reason, you know, why this investment came at such a right time was I spoke to Mr. Birla. He's very, very respectful of what we've built. And, you know, I'm looking at the changes that ABFRL is bringing in, you know, changes in HR, changes in the way they are looking into, the, you know, you know, I could only manage a certain kind of insurance, but they're, they're bringing insurance, not just for the, the workers, but they're for their families. They're bringing in health insurance. They're uh, bringing in financial security. You know, they're coming up with policies where they give them better support system to improve their careers. And what they're, you know, Mr. Billa's daughter works in the microfinance sector. They're doing a lot with craft and artisans. And I think it's a work in progress and it's going to be an ongoing commitment from our side that in years to come, we are going to work with more and more craftspeople. We are going to help them with healthcare, with education, with banking. You know, I have never really believed in charity. I've this never... is human capitalism. This is Correct. ethical capitalism, right? Correct. I've not believed in charity because I think charity somehow, you know, for me, is somehow, it's about not letting a person be empowered. I think if you really want someone to sustain, just empower them to stand on their own feet. And and that is what we try to do. We are also going to start setting up small micro businesses for some of our craftspeople so that while they work for us, they can work for other organizations also. Chanel has managed to do that, you know, with their ateliers where uh, the first right of refusal comes from Chanel and then they can work with other people. We are not only going to do that, we are probably going to at a time, uh, uh, much later, probably do global collaborations where we can probably facilitate artisans to produce for global companies. And, you know, there is only that much that you, you need, but the rest can all be employed by other people. And I... That is just, that is game changing. It's fantastic. And my job as a designer, at least in my lifetime, is to raise the bar of craft in this country. I think if I can take a sari from a price point of 5 rupees to 50 rupees, the entire ecosystem benefits. You know, I remember as I raise my prices more and more, I bring in better and better quality. I, the, You know, we spend so much money in creating the brand. The copy market rises. As the copy market rises, there there is more and more and more people who get employed. I keep telling people that don't stop commerce. It's not a bad word. You have to understand without commerce, nothing survives. When with commerce, with ethical capitalism, uh, with uh, creating empowerment for people at lower levels, everything will grow. And, you know, I have a long-term view of business, not a short-term view of business, which is probably one of the reasons why we have been successful. Because I say that, you know, it's, it's like a people tree movement. You can't really rise up without taking people along with you. There are many people in my organization who are incentivized on top line. Because they are incentivized on top line, they all think it's their business. You know, you, you speak to some of the people in my uh, in my company. They believe that they own the company more than I do. And I think it's a great thing. That's wonderful. Can you tell me about the moving parts um, uh, about your Aditya Birla deal? Like, are you going to mass manufacture or is it uh, a horizontal expansion with makeup and jewelry, accessories, which, you know, you've had a phenomenal year with accessories as well, home decor, Give us some details. I think it's going to be a horizontal expansion first. I I am not going to do ready to wear at the moment, but I'll never say never because you know you don't you know the world changes so furiously. You never know what might happen, and I I do not uh, you know some the pandemic brought us to our knees. You know if something like that happened again, you God only knows what we'll be forced to do because it took all our dignity away. But 
right now it's all about horizontal expansion we want to do beauty because i think there's space for indian beauty in the world we want to do fragrances we want to do eyewear we want to do jewelry jewelry is going to be a very big push for us because you know i started off as a jeweler i think i understand jewelry better than many people in the industry and it's been a passion for me and we are going to grow jewelry at every single uh, level you know from entry level uh, to uh, couture did you know that your jewelry vertical would be this huge you said to me in an earlier interview that you made more money making jewelry in one year than you did in like a decade of making fashion yeah you know like uh, in the third year of the business second or third year of the business we almost touched 100 crores in jewelry you know uh, it it's been a slow growth because there people are always suspicious you know there there has been a lot of ganging up against me with the jewelers in the country but if you hashtag sabisachi today you'll see more fakes of my jewelry than you'll see fakes of my clothes so that's becoming a big industry and i'm very proud to say that you know we've been only in the game for 2 years we've had windows in fifth avenue we've had bergdorf shutting down and people selling for the selling high jewelry for the first time on fifth avenue uh, you know there were girls who came they begged bergdorf to open the store for them and they actually sold the jewelry on pavement they've never done that before that was, sounds comical yeah it was it i think it was reported by new york times or by uh, vogue.com i'm not sure which one and then today you know we have started a jewelry store with bayat damas there the ceo of the project is a ceo who's ex uh, ceo of armes watches and jewelry and uh, we share a pride of place with brands like mikimoto and graf you know stalwarts in the industry and we are the only designers from india only jewelers from india and uh, we are going to be opening a new york store which has is going to have a very strong flagship for jewelry and uh, in years to come the aspiration is to become the cartier of india well there's a lot of rooms in some most of the jewelers are in hiding uh, or in jail tell me about the bengal tiger motif you know it is and i'm saying this as a commentator as a as a market watcher it is indian fashion's first recognizable logo why did you feel the need to have a logo because it's a very old marketing you know stick but in fashion i've never seen anyone do it um, at this level where you know it's just become you don't need to say sabisachi it just has it's just the logo it's just the title i think it's brilliant you've answered the question namrata <laughs> so uh, you know the idea was to find something where people could say sabisachi without saying sabisachi and also it's a difficult name to pronounce you know when when the label goes worldwide it'll be easier for people to say probably the tiger brand rather than sabisachi and it's a you know and it's a beautiful logo it's very powerful it's very india proud it's very bengal proud and i wanted to do something that stood for india and stood for west bengal where i come from and uh, this logo was also plagiarized like i remember going to the alipur zoo and you know there's a very handsome tiger that sits atop the national library a sculpture and i looked at that and i said a version of this is going to be my logo because it just it just made me feel you know it just it was just so powerful standing alone on its own a solitary creature in the afternoon sun in calcutta and you know sometimes you just know so i came back home and i sketched the logo and we did this show called big love and the rest is history okay excuse me for being vulgar but how do you make money do you have some sort of my just a touch that everything you attempt 
pretty much turns to gold. I mean, everyone says, you know, Sabya is a great businessman, but what does it really mean? I mean, it's also a little annoying in, in a reductive sort of way, like as if you're just sitting on one gadi and counting money, like what? how do you do it? Like, how do you really, you know, turn an idea into a success story? Empathy. 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 You know, I, I was born middle class and when you're born middle class, you know, no matter how rich you become or how powerful you become, these values never leave you. Every time I make something, I tell myself, why will people spend money trying to achieve that? You know, a lot of people actually look at the intrinsic value of a product and say, oh, this is expensive. This is not expensive. By that logic, uh, Chanel wouldn't have sold. Hermes wouldn't have sold. I think what people don't do is they don't invest in the ecosystem of luxury you know you need to you need to not only focus on a product but you need to focus on the storytelling the experience the advertising so today when i dress up a dipika padukone or a priyanka chopra or an ashwarya rai when my clothes go to khan when i'm at bergdorf when i'm doing things even somebody who's buying let's say a belt from me which is at entry level will feel that they are a part of that story i think I think the only way to make money is to invest money which a lot of people don't do you know a lot of people want returns without giving anything back I I I think the most there's a very simple organic principle of business you need to put in money to get money and I've never been shy of that at times when my turnover was very very small I knew I remember when I opened my large Bombay store my business wasn't that big but I had a vision I was like white people who come in luxury cars like Rolls Royces and 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 Jaguars and want to spend 5 or 6 lakhs on clothing why do they have to go into a store that looks like a garage why is there no experience and this is the same customer from India who is going to the Louis Vuitton stores and the Chanel stores why can't we give them similar experiences i took off a lot of my marketing budget to put it in the store and you know the stores have catapulted the business and i keep telling people one thing i said that you know a lot of people you know you need to be a little detached about money yeah. if you are always going to be counting pennies you'll never be able to grow a business it's very important to have a vision and to feed that vision with money so that the vision actually it's money is like a fertilizer you want to plant a tree you need to give fertilizer to it to be able to let the tree bloom and the fruits will come back and you can sell the fruits and you can make more money i think people need to understand the importance of being able to invest in their vision and their businesses and money will happen this also brings me to brand building i mean what does it mean to you because a lot of people use it very loosely you know if they if they didn't make money or i did it for brand building but you know you have nurtured your label nurtured your company um it's no short of an empire so is this what you had dreamed of when you started and how did you go about achieving this brand story because to me as an outsider it seems slow it seems sure-footed sure-footed it seems very meticulous so tell me how you know how you planned it in namrata i've always had a very strong sense of self and what bothered me always was the fact that we've never been able to build superlative brands out of india one of the big brand one of the things in luxury that i admire from india is the oberoi hotels you know because it was singularly run by one man and he put us on a position of pride and i've said that in many of my interviews i look up to him i look up to mr oberoi 
and uh, you know there are such fabulous tales of him of changing the plumbing all over the hotels in delhi so that you know the water could heat uh you know th- there's a certain way he wanted certain room sizes you know he didn't he had an opportunity of uh, doing hotels with larger amount of rooms but he deliberately kept the rooms larger but the number of rooms smaller so he could give people that sense of luxury you know i think you need to be a little giving to be able to create a brand and you need to have an exemplary vision and for me i say one thing to people i said that you know brands are things that last you know if you want to make money you can have a short term view of making money or a long term view of making money and after you make a certain amount of money number the money for a lot of people like us is just mere statistics what you want to actually leave behind is a legacy for me that was very important that you know when i look back you know when i am lying alone in a hospital bed when i'm not well and i know that it's my time to go i want to look back and say that you know in my lifetime I at least had a shot. I, I at least tried to create a difference, and I tried to create something that would last. If I can do that, I'll feel very privileged. Sapya, how do you deal with your copycats across fashion, jewelry, accessories? You, in your twenty plus years, you've been the most copied designer from the first year, and and I've watched you since then. Um, you know, your aesthetic has been in every bridal shop. the gazillions of them across the country your dark colors the dull gold embroidery the mismatched prints you know your beautiful vintage borders now your handbag and i know we shared this you know on whatsapp a month ago when you know your handbag was spotted in one of the delhi's you know local bazaars along with uh, a dior and a michael kors how do you deal with it you know you have to deal with it by becoming a realist when you come out with a beautiful idea if you do not have the bandwidth to reach out to everybody who aspires to be a part of the idea somebody else will fill in while copying is annoying but you have to understand something that you will only fear the copy market if you have not built a brand where people will aspire to buy you at the real price you know today i don't worry about the copy market anymore because of the fact that i know that my customers and a lot of my customers like the digitized sanganeri print are coming from the copy market into into the sabisachi brand i'll give you an example a lot of girls probably wear uh sabya copy number 1 or 2 or 3 for their friends weddings or for their sisters weddings but when it comes to their real wedding their own weddings they come to the brand because they say maybe just once in my life i'll be able to buy or wear a sabya and i think the copy market in many ways has been a great advertiser for the brand you know they are silent advertisers because they are constantly telling other people that how good you are then that's the reason why they have to copy you i think it's 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 a great factory and it's it's also great uh in terms of business marketing what one needs to do is one needs to be ahead of the curve the question is not about what will you do about the copy market the question is what will you do to your own brand so that people want to buy you and not want to buy a copy a lot of people get that math wrong worldwide just imagine what would happen to chanel or louis vuitton if there were no copies sold anywhere in the world they would be very disappointed <laughs> you've told me before that sabya sachi the company doesn't belong to you it belongs to the country what do you mean by that look at the kind of reactions we cause in people from very loved to very hated it all happens when people have an ownership on your brand 
you know you know like much like we love brands you know i i i keep saying if a cricketer manages to lose a world cup match no matter how good the person has been throughout his career becomes a national terrorist you know like i think when you become powerful you become powerful because of the love of all people and you also need to understand that the people who uh, make you are also the people who can pull you down and i'm very cognizant of that uh, i i keep telling people that you know today you know i have a lot of nris who get married in my clothes and they come back and say that you know when we go and meet other communities in the countries that we stay in we show your work and we say this is india i think a lot of people take pride in the brand and uh, i'm very humbled you know bomani irani had once said to me in a in a chat show that he said that you know while other designers and other businesses have customers you have fans you know it's scary because you know it puts a lot of weight on your shoulders but i think that probably puts me in a correct path that maybe i've done something good in my life to receive this kind of adulation and i'll try to work hard and you know honestly this h&m collaboration i come back to that was actually to give people a sense of pride that if he can do it so can we and it doesn't have to be in fashion it could be in music it could be in architecture it could be in food it could be in anything i think india deserves to have nationwide worldwide recognition it's about time i think a lot of us whether there are actors musicians writers we all need to push forward for more and more global acceptance i remember this bowman interview because i was part of it you critiqued me very strongly on it what did i say i forgot you spoke about how um, i wrote a piece uh, in the first year of your launch and how you didn't speak to me for a year and you pasted it Uh, in your office do you remember that story yes sabesh actually has that. reinvented himself as the next best thing after the singer sewing machine something like that and you know it was my first piece of criticism i was very rankled by it because nobody likes to be criticized but i kept it on my board and i said i will never allow this to happen to me again i ate humble pie namrata because you were completely right you know while everybody else praised me you're the only one who cut me into pieces and i deserve to be and and a lot of people you know i have i hear a lot of chatter that you know i'm not i'm not someone who takes criticism well that's absolutely not true you can never succeed or you can never rise if you're not listening to stories you know i i'm absorbing all the conversation around around hnm and i'm sure that somewhere everybody will reach a middle path where the modern and the old commerce and art can all coexist hand in hand there is space for everybody What's next for Sabesachi the company and Sabesachi the person? Okay, for Sabesachi the person I need to get a little bit of biceps. You know, I've never looked at <laughs> I've never looked at my own personal health. So I'm running on a treadmill every day. I started enjoying giving back to myself so much. You know, I run 7 kilometers every day on my treadmill. I have never understood the benefits of health you know i was pre diabetic i have very chronic thyroid which slows down my brain and you know it's very difficult uh, for the left side and the right side of the brain to be completely aligned and working together when you have conditions like thyroid it slows you down but now since i started working out i've started feeling a lot better and about the brand 
I'll only say two words: global domination. To that, I I raise my glass to you. I doff my hat to you. Thank you for speaking to me in I think what has been your most tumultuous week of the year or the last few years. Um, I really appreciate it, and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you, Namrata. If you enjoyed the show or not. Write to me on Instagram, Twitter, or Clubhouse at Namrata Sitar. You can catch the video podcast on the Lifeline channel on YouTube. For updates on Tell Me How You Did It, follow us at HT Smartcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com or suno nay nazariye se. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.